And I do pray indeed that is our prayer, that uh, we will be a generation of people that continually seek the face of our God, knowledge of Him, His truth. Uh, this week we do have children's church again, so if you have younger elementary school kids that you would like to invite to go back to children's church this morning, now is the time to make that transition. We are continuing our study. The series is Christ, Culture, and Sexuality. This is actually week four in that study, but it's the second week that we're focusing on the question of identity. We're dealing specifically with a current contemporary, redundant, a contemporary issue that is always in the news and that we're continually being faced with, and that is uh, the LGBTQ, and we're focusing on the T, transgenderism, the transgender movement, what it is, and how we as believers are to respond, what the scriptures say about it. Our text this morning was 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we're talking about identity and what a declaration we find here. While we live in a world that is stumbling over and offended by Jesus, the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected, and by truth that he has proclaimed, we're different. As God's people, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation a people for his own possession. And that, that results in, that means that we proclaim the excellencies of him, of Jesus, who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, we're his. We belong to the Lord. Amen? Are you with me this morning? Aren't you glad that we've been bought with a price? We've been redeemed. We are saved. We, our bodies, our very bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who lives within us. We're his. We have received mercy. Whatever our sins, his mercy was more. And when we came to him in repentance and faith, he washed us and he cleansed us and he made us new. He made us his own. And so... Going forward, as we live, the sanctification that we were just singing about, we abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. There is a battle and there is warfare, and it's fought in our minds, it's fought in our hearts, but it's also fought around us. And this is the, 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 the culture, how we as believers live in a world hostile to truth. And one of the very things he ends with here is keep our conduct honorable. So how do we behave? In the matter, it matters in the issue of the transgender movement and the ideology. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And our battle is in the hearts and minds and for truth. And so the purpose of this series, again, just to remind you, is so that we'll know what God has to say about it. So we may be right in our thinking and in our beliefs. Uh, there are a lot of, of churches or there are a lot of professing Christians who have kind of lost their way on this and they've allowed themselves to rather than believing in the authority and the truth of God's word have allowed themselves to be influenced by false authorities but also to enable us to equip us to be able to talk with people who are dealing with these issues and they're here they're in our community they're in our families and extended families they're around us too long the church has either been silent or simply been condemning and we need to remember that God's call is here to be on his mission. We are here to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying. We're here to proclaim the good news of Christ. And so our structure for last week and this week particularly is to give you, equip you with a framework with which to carry on those conversations for both belief 
and for interaction. The first we looked at last week was the question of authority. If we can put that slide up on the screen. Uh, we talked about who are you going to believe because the, who is the authority of the current age? Who, who, who is the authority of the culture? Who do they look to for answers? Oh, self, science, medical professionals. By the way, good science always supports Scripture, by the way, just, or it, just so that you know that in case there was any, any question. But again, we looked at specifically last week some declarations that are being made, and we'll come back and look at these. The question of authority runs through, and yet we know, folks, we know that God has given us His revelation through creation. He's given us His revelation through His living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, perfect life, crucified, resurrected, reigning today. He's given us revelation through his written word that he not only inspired by over 40 different people over a period of 1,500 years, he has preserved it for us and he speaks to us through his living word today and his word is authority in our lives and what we believe, what we say. God does not lie. He's not a man that he should lie. He always speaks the truth and we looked briefly at all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable, it's beneficial, it's necessary, it's needful for us to understand truth, for us to be corrected in our wrong thinking, for us to be trained and equipped in righteousness in order that we may be put to use, that we may be used by the Holy Spirit of God. And so there's always the question of authority. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? But then there's also the question of identity. The world keeps asking the question, who am I? And we looked briefly last week that there was a traditional mindset of identity. I don't know if you can read those words. They look small to me. But the traditional mindset of identity was identity was determined through your family and your community. You were raised to take responsibility and do your duty fulfilling your role in the community or as a member of a family. The current culture says, no, that's a power issue. That's patriarchal. That's that's not how identity is determined. The current culture says that identity is determined through um, modern expressive individualism. Identity is found through the desires and feelings that must be expressed. You discovered them, and then you express them in order to become your authentic self. You heard that phrase lately? Your authentic self, who you really are inside. But can I tell you that the Bible tells us who we are? Who are you? You are who God says you are. Listen to me. You're created in the image of God. And I don't mean just the prototypes of Adam and Eve, and then God took his hand off and let us go. I mean, according to Psalm 139, you were crafted in your mother's womb and shapen, and he knew you before you were born. And because of the sin of Adam, you are separated from God, and you have a, a nature that rebels against God And you're without hope in the world until the Holy Spirit breaks through, until God draws you and convicts you, and then He redeems you. And so you're in one of two categories. Your identity is one that is alienated from God or one who has been rescued, redeemed, saved, washed, cleansed, forgiven, declared not guilty, justified, and given life eternal in His presence. And we have a massive responsibility here to identify who we are in Scripture To help people discover who God made them to be. But now we get to the third point. The third point today is, what's the big deal with transgenderism? It's a question of societal impact. Who does it hurt? I mean, why should it matter to us, right? 
What, what's the big deal? One thing that we learn early on is you can expect lost people to act like lost people. You shouldn't have to expect saved people to act like lost people. Too often we do. But you can always expect lost people to act like lost people. Sexual sin is rampant. It's accepted. We live in a sexy society. It's promoted under the guise of freedom. And it's just one category of sin. So why do we pick on, why do we pick on people's sex life? Recently, I was in a I say recently, it's been several months ago now, I was in a conversation with a young lady who does not go to church, no affiliation with the church. And her parents, though, have gone to church, but they were looking for a new church. Because their church had taken a stance not to perform wedding ceremonies and not to ordain homosexuals, not to perform wedding ceremonies between same-sex individuals and not to ordain same-sex individuals in the ministry. And this person, this individual's mother and father were looking for a church that would be a lot more loving and a lot more accepting and a lot more open because they felt like their church was just being hateful. Now, don't you understand that when you follow the false narrative that we talked about last week. I hope you're here, and if not, I hope you'll listen to it. There's a false narrative out there. But when you follow the false narrative, then what, when you say that, when you don't let people do that, you're not letting them be their authentic self, and of course you're the bad guy. And yet it's a lie. It's a based on a lie. Back to the question of authority. But isn't it better for the church to show love to everybody regardless how egregious their sin is against God? Aren't believers supposed to be winsome? And loving, drawing people to Christ by overt displays of love? And the answer to that question is yes. Unequivocally, yes. Without a doubt, yes. But you must embrace the fact that explicit Christian truth-telling is one of the reasons the church exists, period. What did we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2? We read who we are. But then we read what we're supposed to do. A, cho- a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of Jesus, who has called us out of darkness into his modern and marvelous light. And we need to recognize that our goal is to help bring people out of darkness into light. You can't do that without proclaiming truth. The God of the Bible has sent his church into the world to tell the truth about himself about His laws and His commands, about His grace and His love and His mercy that is more, and about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about this. Now, trans ideology is different than LGB or non-binary or genderqueer or uh, I or A or plus plus or any of the other things that are out there. And and I want to just kind of... We're going to start here talking about some of the issues, some of the harm that is being done. A recent cover story in Time marked a major milestone in this transgender movement and revolution, as it's called, a cultural revolution. Katie Steinmetz was the author of this article, and she described some of the ideas that, dis- that drive this transgender movement. In her words, I want to read this, sexual preferences are a separate matter altogether from the transgender movement. There is no concrete correlation between a person's gender identity and sexual interest. A heterosexual woman, for instance, might start living as a man, there's the trans part, and still be attracted to men. One oft-cited explanation is that the sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with 
And gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. Does that make sense? Again, I'm just trying to give clarity to the situation and what we're facing. Why does this matter to Christians? Because we stand for truth. We speak truth because we care. Yes, we are strangers and aliens. Yes, we live in a fallen world. But we have a role. Like God told the Jews when they were taken into captivity in Babylon... Uh, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. You're in exile. You're in a foreign land whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives and, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city, the place, the exile, and where I have sent you into exile. And I pray and pray to the Lord on, on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We have a responsibility for our culture and society at large. I do want to come back and make a statement that I'm going to come back and make later. Christless conservatism is never the answer. Conservative morality, apart from the redeeming love and the shed blood of Christ and the redemption that is found in Christ, is not the answer. The answer is Christ in the gospel. Amen? Are you with me there? We, we need to make sure we don't lose that. So what harm is being done? I put these under four categories. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Some of this stuff you may not know. Some of it I may be getting bogged down on, so I'm going to need some help out there. If it feels like I'm beating something to death, will you guys just kind of... Is Suzanne in here? I don't see her. She's probably in the nursery. That's usually her job. So in, in her absence... If you guys would help me out, that would be good. But suppose your three- or four-year-old son who plays with your daughter and friends, as they, and they play dress-up, and they play dolls, and they have tea parties. And when you're talking to him, remember, he's about three or four years old. He says, he's a girl. He wants to be a girl like his sister or like his mom or like his aunt. Here's my question to you. Does that make him one? It does not. I have a nephew. I won't call his name out. He's a... Old married guy now with three kids or so, maybe four. And uh, when he was a little boy, he asked his mom one day, when did I become a boy? And of course, she's like, what are you talking about? Well, all the babies he knew were girls. All the, all the babies were, were little girls. And he figured everybody was born a girl and you just got to be a boy later on. All right. Is that biology? Is that science? Is that good thinking? No, obviously not. Children can't do that. Does it make him one that he wants to be one? Clearly not, yet trans ideology says it can. And if the conversation comes up over a period of, of months, it does. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, most children have a stable sense of their gender identity by age four. Four, right? The Human Rights Campaign, you guys ever heard of them? They are the strongest voice, probably, advocating for the LGBTQ plus agenda. They continue to promote legislation and the politicization of what they call equality. Here's a portion of their statement off of their, their documents, their website. Children are not born knowing what it means to be a boy or a girl. They learn it from their parents, older children, and others around them. This learning process begins early, as soon as the doctor or other health care provider declares Based upon observing the newborn's external sex organs, it's a boy or it's a girl. The world around a child begins to teach these lessons, whether it's the sorting of blue clothes and pink clothes, boys' toys, girls' toys, or telling young girls they're pretty and boys that they're strong. 
And so they're saying everything's fluid. All of this is socially or externally or environmentally applied. Listen, they're going to say the general rule for determining whether a child is transgender or non-binary rather than a gender non-conforming or gender variant. And don't get thrown off by all the terminology. All right, we can dig down in that. But they said if your child is consistent and persistent about their transgender identity, then that's an indicative. In other words, if your four-year-old son wants to wear a dress or says he wants to be a girl just once or twice, he's probably not transgender. But if your child who is assigned male at birth repeatedly insists over the course of several months that he's a girl, then she's probably a girl. And I have to tell you guys, in some ways, in studying this stuff, I have read documents, and I have listened to testimony, and I have watched videos. And I, it, somebody asked me, what were you doing Thursday morning? I said, waiting through filth and foolishness. Some of this just makes no sense. It is easy, it seems, to see the deceptiveness of the mindset that is out there. Ryan Anderson wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. Are you familiar with it? I recommend it. If you can find it, Amazon took it off of their marketing, but you can get it. It's out there. He cites a declaration made in a federal court case by a Dr. Scott Leibowitz, who, by the way, is with the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, over their pediatric psychiatric care. And he said, I quote, in his declaration for a court in North Carolina that was hearing a case, he says, peer-reviewed research demonstrates that the pre-pubertal children asserting a different identity from <laughs> gender identity from the one that they were assigned at birth are cognitively, cognitively capable enough to be aware of the gender they are asserting. The meaning of a child's gender identity assertion at a younger age, he goes on to clarify that could be as young as three or four, is no less valid than the meaning of a gender identity assertion of an older child. Do you hear that? There's a danger out there. And by the way, when we talked about authority, I said, what, what is the world authority? Some of it's scientific, medical, um, AMA, APA, it, it, different organizations. But at Duke University, Dr. Deanna Adkins is with the School of Medicine there. And she's the director for the Center for Child and Adolescent Gender Care, opened in 2015, by the way, recently. What she does, what her department does, one of their roles is to go into medical doctor's offices, particularly pediatric doctor's office, to tell them how to affirm gender identity, how to change the terminology, how to, how to, how to treat and care. And she says, from a medical perspective, this is printed, it's, it's clear, from a medical perspective, she says the appropriate determinant of sex is gender identity, which means psychology over biology. You understand that, right? She goes on to make the, what to me, incredible claim. It is counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity, again, cognitive, for purposes of classifying someone as male or female. Did you hear that? It is simply a denial of basic biology 
to promote a mindset. Now, granted, there is gender confusion and can be. Gender dysphoria, do you know the age when gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder is, is typically expressed? Seven years old. Do you know what percentage of people expressing some sort of gender confusion or gender identity disorder, what percentage of them grow out of it as they get through adolescence and through their teen years? Over 80%. Can I tell you, I'm just going to walk through this really quick. Can I tell you what happens to kids? Say you have a 7-year-old or an 11-year-old who says, I feel like I'm a girl. He's a boy. He feels like he's a girl. He's a girl, and she feels like she's a boy. She should be a boy. feels like she's in the wrong body, and I am not dismissing what's taking place in their minds or in their bodies. you understand that right? I'm not ridiculing them. I'm telling you that there's some truths that they need to know and grasp, and they need to be loved, and they need to be cared for, and they need to be instructed on, on God and God's work in their life, what God has done for them. But when they come to you and they're that, you know what, what typically happens? There's supposed to be a vetting process where there is counseling that takes place over a period of time. And when this professional says, oh, yes, this is obvious, an obvious case of dysphoria, this person needs to be affirmed in their alternate gender identity, then they'll tell them, you need to go ahead and be socialized. So go ahead and change your pronouns, change your clothes, change how you act like the gender that you're identifying with and be accepted socially there. And then if they're prepubescent, the next step, so the first is social, the second is medical. Uh, the, what they do then is they'll put you on puberty blockers. Are you familiar with the puberty blockers that they use? One of them is a cancer medication uh, that effectively serves as uh, a chemical ca castration for those who are serving with prostate cancer. And I've got all this information. I'll be glad to. I'd love to just unload a ton of information on you. I want to be careful here because I don't want to get stuck on things that, let's just say that there are legitimate concerns. You, you can look at the legitimate concerns. And then after puberty blockers, puberty blockers that, that keep you from going through the changes physically, uh, then you can be treated with hormones, either testosterone or with estrogen for whichever gender you're identifying as that is opposite from your biological gender. And one of the statements that is continually repeated is, if they change their mind, you can just stop the treatment. No harm done. And that's a lie. That is demonstrably lie. By the way, none of the drugs that are used for puberty blockers have been approved by the FDA for use as puberty blockers, and yet they're often prescribed that way. All right, now, again... I don't want to get tied up in this too deeply, but I do want you to know there's social, then there's medical, and then for adults over 18 years old and or case by case in adolescence, it can progress to gender reassignment surgery, top surgery, mastectomies, cutting off of the breast, or bottom surgery where they do genitalia surgery, and then plastic surgery as well. The goal is that they then have changed their physiology to match their gender identity and all is well. And the claim is that screening and extensive counseling and gatekeeping is in place. And the question is, is that true or not? If the child changes their mind, the treatments are reversible or mostly reversible, so no harm done. The problem with that is it's not true. I want to tell you quickly about Carrie Stella. And I don't know if you've read from her or seen any of her videos or testimony. Here's what she says. I was put on hormones after three months of therapy when I was 17 years old. 
In fact, because I was only seeing a therapist once a month, it was after three or four visits that I was prescribed testosterone with no meaningful attempt made to process the issues that I brought up that led me to consider transitioning. When I was transitioning, no one in the medical or psychological field ever tried to dissuade me or to offer other options or to do anything, really, to stop me besides tell me I should wait until I was 18. And I want to ask you how many other medical conditions are there when you can walk into a doctor's office, tell them you have a certain condition which has no objective test, which can be caused by trauma or mental health issues or societal factors and receive life-altering medications on just your say-so. Now, I do not know that she is the exception or the rule. I do know that it happens, and it happens. There are so many people detransitioning, and there's just a lot that's out there. Are the treatments reversible? We won't get into that, but I will say no. There are some treatments that can be stopped. But can I tell you, just the socialization will have an impact on how a child perceives themselves for the rest of their life. Just how you address them, uh, it matters. It, it matters. Medically, there are issues. In 2022, the National Board of Health and Welfare in Sweden changed their policies. They established new guidelines recommending that puberty blockers only be given in a few exceptional cases and said that their use was grounded in uncertain, unproven science. And they recommended child psychiatric treatment, neurological treatment, psychosocial interventions, and suicide prevention be offered by clinicians for minors. And by the way, the New York Times Monday published a headline that said, England limits the use of puberty-blocking gloves. <laughs> puberty-blocking drugs to research only. So England has made a change. Sweden has made a change. The United States has not. By the way, both of those were appealed. And as I mentioned, over 80% of people who experience gender identity disorder grow out of it through adolescence and into their teen years. It's a danger for children, but isn't, this, it, isn't that the parents' problem? Isn't that the parents' issue? Isn't it? That's part of the problem. There are school districts that have policies in place that require teachers and administrators to affirm gender dysphoria identity of minor students, and they refuse to notify the parents. Are you guys aware of this? Because if you guys are aware of this, i got a lot of sermon here. And I don't want to beat a, beat a horse to death, but... There's a guideline that's been published through the National Education Association. It was prepared by the Human Rights Campaign, the ACLU, Gender Spectrum, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And it's called Schools in Transition, the Guide for Supporting Transgender Students in K-12 Schools. Here's a direct quote. Privacy and confidentiality are critically important for transgender students who do not have supportive families. In those situations, and even an inadvertent, mistaken, unintentional disclosure could put the student in a potentially dangerous situation at home. So it is important to have a plan in place to help avoid any mistakes or slip-ups. They're telling educators when, you, when a child comes to you and expresses those types of concerns, don't tell their parents. Uh, there's several New York articles that I would, uh, New York Times articles and others that I would recommend that you read, but this is impacting people across the political spectrum and across the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, one father in Massachusetts, his name is Stephen Foote, said he only learned that his 11-year-old 
son, our child had done so after the child's sixth grade teacher, Bonnie Manchester, told him. Miss Manchester was later fired for, fired for disclosing sensitive confidential information about a student's expressed gender against the wishes of the student, according to her termin termination letter. Here's what's happening. They're told a parent that does not affirm whatever the child identifies as is creating a hostile environment. We define that as abusive. Therefore, we have no obligation to notify the parent. And so they can do the social transitioning at that point, and they can also get a guidance counselor to get people involved in this process, to, in this transitioning process, without notifying the parent. And if they notify the parent, this is not in every school district. It's certainly not in Greenville, not in Anderson, not in the upstate that I'm aware of. But it is taking place, and it's taking place in these United States. And you may think, this is such a small minority, why should it matter? Well, the numbers of people identifying as trans are increasing significantly. I'm spending too much time on the first part of this, but you guys ever heard the phrase social contagion? Can we just talk for a minute? Have you guys ever heard the phrase social contagion? I have a, I have a friend who uh, suffered from anorexia, uh, anorexia nervosa. Uh, in her mind, she was fat, ugly, and overweight. And when she was in the midst of this, she was about 96 pounds. By no definition, by no objective definition, you look in the mirror, or you look at her, no one would think that, yet when she looked in the mirror, that's what she saw. She identified as something that was not true. Now, here's what happened, and, and there are many, many studies on this, many, many studies on this. When a person is diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, they will find that there is a group of peers or a group of other people, and all of a sudden, it's not just one person, but there's a uh, kind of an outbreak, if you will, just a, a spreading of that same deception, of that same mindset that takes place. It's called a social contagion. It means it's caught from your peers. Well, Ann Littman wrote a paper <laughs> who said, and she, she came up with the term rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD. Right? She is a liberal politically and in her ideology, and she said we need to be aware that up until about 18 years ago, almost all gender dysphoria, or the vast majority, were young boys who identified as females. But since 2016, well, in the year 2016, 2017, there was a, over a 250% increase in the number of girls, adolescent, teenage girls, who identified, uh, diagnosed with some sort of gender dysphoria and went on for treatment. And she gave the caution that there is a social contagion aspect to this. Peers, influence, and there's a certain cachet. If you've got somebody who's already struggling with uh, uh, not having friends, somebody who's already struggling with depression, it, it can have an impact. And I can go into that, but I'm, I'm, I'm really done with that. I want you to know that there's damage to families. There's damage to children themselves. There's damage to societies and local communities. There's damage to societies with a whole. I'll make this available, this information available to you in print if you would like it. But I need to get to the sermon. I really do. I'm just going to tell you the world's a mess. And we have the answer. We have the answer. No one, 
is free from the temptation to sexual sin. There's not a single person apart from the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that sin has not impacted our standing with God, has not impacted our need for a Savior, has not impacted aspects of our life, every aspect of our life. So why does God care about my sex life and my sexual identity? Because He cares about you. He created you. He designed you. He made you. He crafted you. He loves you. He created you in His image. And He knows that you're falling and fallen from Him by sin. Your sins have separated between you and your God. And He wants to redeem and restore you. The promise of God is coming to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. I want you to know what He provides that only he can provide. He cares because he cares for you and because sex matters. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? God's already created Adam. He looked at Adam and said, it's not good that you're alone. How did God know that? Was God alone? No, God lives in a perfect unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet one God. By the way, God wasn't missing something or lonely, and that's why he created us. God's never missing anything. You get that, right? He's never experienced a deficit of any kind. He is full and complete and holy and pure. And yet in his design and sovereign will, he created us male and female. He brought Adam and Eve together. He stood them up in front of each other. No clothes, no shame. He told them, for this reason, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, shall hold to, shall bond to. The word there is the word group, you, uh, glue. You will be united to your wife. And the two shall become one flesh, an obvious understanding of sexual intercourse, becoming one flesh together. It's an important thing that we recognize that sex is a precious gift. The union of bodies and so much more. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Because of the purpose of sex in a culture where sex is viewed as recreation or some expression of identity we need to both understand and recognize that in its right place sex is a precious and valuable gift i was raised and and certainly taught that the main purpose of sexual intercourse is procreation have kids and so i told my kids have kids have lots suzanne and i had three we want each of you to have four We haven't got there yet. No. Have kids. Children are a good thing. A a, a quiver full of of arrows. But, But can I tell you that there's a more basic and yet more significant spiritually meaning and purpose in sex? And it's unification. It's holding fast. It's cleaving. It's one man. By the way, this requires gender binary, male and female. One man and one woman coming together. And in this way, they become one flesh. There's a a spiritual aspect of this, this union between a man and a woman. We get that throughout Scripture, not only uh, in Genesis 2.24, it's repeated in the New Testament, the same passage quoted by Christ, quoted by Paul. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members? What does that mean? I mean, body parts, limbs of Christ. 
Shall I take the member of a Christ and make them member of a prostitute through, through some sort of sexual act with someone other than someone I'm in a relationship with, or a covenantal relationship with? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined, that's cleave, that's glue, to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, there's a difference in sexual sin and other sins. Every other sin a man commits is outside of his body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body that has already been joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, it's easy for me to say the Christian rule, the Christian ethic for sex is one man, one woman in a covenant relationship for life. That's easy. And the world says, why in the world would we do that? Why would we do that? And here's what I want to ask you. Do you know the answer to that question? When somebody comes to you and says, why shouldn't I live with this guy or this girl before we're married? Or, I know I'm married, but there's this guy at work. I like him. It's just recreation. The food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Do you know the answer? Do you know what God has designed in this? The unification of man and woman in a relationship as a symbol, as a model, as part of his plan, identifying our bonding, our unification with God, our relationship with him. And again, this is going to be another sermon series. <laughs> Not today, but unification and yes, procreation, and yes, frankly, recreation, joy. If you don't believe me, go read the Song of Solomon. We get the reputation, we just don't like sex. And I've got to tell you, that's just not true. God has a glorious design. Sex is a gift. Tim Keller says every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. Paul insisted is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life to. He continues, if sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when it's wrongly used. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as though you're literally physically joined. I don't like winter. Do y'all know that? But I like fires. I like fires. I like fires in the fireplace. Uh, I typically do a lot of pruning, pile wood up in the backyard, and set a match to it and get as close as I can. I like fires in the fireplace. My chair is the one that's closest to the fireplace. Fire is great as long as it's controlled, as long as it's where it's supposed to be. There are very few things as disruptive, as damaging, as destructive as fire out of control, fire that consumes and fire that spreads. And can I just share with you that in the arena of sexual desires, in the arena of sexual purity, in its place, it's the best thing in the world. It is giving, not taking it is commitment. It is the joining of intima and intimacy. Like 
we all long for in its boundaries. Outside of its boundaries is detrimental. And it has consequences. It always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. So what do we do? And this is really the sermon, but I'm going to close with this. Y'all listen. What do we do? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Remember who you are. Somebody asked me the other day when we were talking about this sermon series, he said, why, why does this matter so much to you? Why does this seem to be so important to you? Of course, I've been studying it, so it was on my mind, and it was part of our conversation. And I do tend to get emotionally engaged when I read some of this stuff. It just makes, makes me mad, makes me want to go fuss at somebody. I read a document that no longer used the word boy and girl. It said people with ovaries and people with penises. Boy, girl. And I know that may be silly and it may be slight, but it's an indicative. Language matters. It's indicative of what's going on in our culture and our society. And I don't know. I was ranting at someone. They said, why is that so important to you? And I said, you know, you're right. What I, what I am most passionate about is that Christ be glorified and exalted. That people come to know him in fullness. My biggest concern for you, and I was talking to a guy in another conversation. I was talking to a guy who said he was going to come. He didn't. But my biggest concern for you is not that you change your sexual lifestyle. My biggest concern for you is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He changes us. You understand the Christian message is the message which hope. Their hope is change your body to fit your mind and you'll find peace and contentment. And it fails across the board. Our message is there is no hope apart from Christ. But in Christ, you get a new reality. You can be made new completely. Remember who you are, but also remember who you were. Once you were not a people, but now you're a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already, and there is nothing like a transformed life to display the power of God. You were brought from darkness to light. You were brought from death to life. This is a message, a testimony, a transformed life. And i got to tell you, church, we need to be pure. We need to be focused on Christ and seeking after Him. We need to abstain from earthly lust, from flesh. We need to, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. We need to be different and distinct. Too many men I know in the church are addicted to internet pornography. It's a sin. It's a sexual sin with horrible consequences in your relationships and in your thinking. And you need to confess and you need to repent and you need to be cleansed and you need to find an accountability partner who will help you remain clean from those images. You need to do like Job's did in Job chapter 31 where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman to lust at her. We need to recognize that what our perspective on sex elevates it. It does not destroy it. It does not damage it. It raises it to the precious gift that God intends for it to be. The value of a man, the value of a woman expressed through physical intimacy as they enter into a lifelong covenant together giving 
rather than taking. Remember who you are. Remember who you were. Guard your heart and your life. Sex outside of the bonds of marriage, sex before marriage, lust, lustful thinking. Those are things that you are to flee. And then you engage the world. You engage the world. He says here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. How'd they get there? They went out there. They lived there. They worked alongside of them. They went to events alongside of them. They had interaction alongside of them so that they could love them, not just beat them up, but love them enough to tell them the truth. Love them enough. Let the truth be a stumbling block. Don't let your behavior be a stumbling block. Declare truth so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And you need to study enough, by the way. You need to know God's word well enough. You need to be prepared to give an apologetic. You need to study enough so that you don't have to say to somebody, well, I believe or I think. You need to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God's word says. Here's where I stand. Here's where I believe. And we proclaim the gospel. Why is this my passion? It's not my passion. Is that you know Christ and that you fall in love with Jesus. I've said before, I want to say it again. Christless conservatism is not the answer. You can be a moral Married for a 60 years person and die separated from Christ and spend an eternity separated from him. You see, when we deal with issues like this, we tend to think I'm okay because that's not me. Remember who you were. Remember what we were like before we came saved, became saved. And share that gospel with people. And I'll close. Have a voice in your community. When people promote sexual sins publicly, I, I, if you need permission from me, I freely grant it. Engage in correcting it publicly. In whatever arena, God gives you the opportunity and society gives you the opportunity. You ought to know who's on your library board. You ought to know who's on your school board. You ought to know who's in your city government. You ought to know who to vote for what they stand for and what they believe. And if God leads you, you ought to run for office. Christian, politician, do not have to be an oxymoron. We want Christians to serve in the roles that God has given government to serve. And can I tell you, by the way, don't panic. God's still God. He's still sovereign. But don't be slack. And the biggest indicator of this is your prayer life. When's the last time you prayed? And I mean really prayed. I mean got down on your face before God. And you became aware. You guys ever watch PBS? You don't have to. I do. And when I was doing research on this, I listened to family after family decrying legislation that would deny gender-affirming medical treatment to minors. And I listened to these parents, and they were weeping, and they were struggling, and they were like, I want to do what's best for my kids. And we have been told that if we don't affirm them in this belief that they're going to kill themselves, they're going to die, we're going to lose our kids. And they simply want to do what's best for their kids. And the, and the only authority they know to go to are, are is an authority that has an ideology that is contrary to the Word of God. False. You know Satan's a liar and the father of lies. You know that, right? So what do we do? 
You get on your knees before a holy, righteous, sovereign, providential God. And you pray. You pray for opportunities to speak truth into people's lives. You pray that God will bring people your way who are struggling that you can speak and talk to them. You pray that God will bring others to them. You pray for politicians and you pray for judges. James M. Moody was a federal judge who this Monday over, or this past week overturned Arkansas's two-year legalized ban on gender-affirming medical treatment for minors. He overturned it. Gone. No longer enforceable. Know his name and lift him up to the Lord. Pray fervently. God can do what we cannot do. Amen? And the predominant prayer is that they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be glorified. I don't know that I've done any, anywhere near what I wanted to accomplish in this series. But I pray that we as a people will not be silent. I don't want our theme to be against sins in the world. I want our theme to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. And we highlight the sins of the world in order to show them that God has a way of offering hope, redemption, salvation, and life. Amen? Isn't God good? Father, thank you just for the opportunity to delve into this subject, to look into your word to remember that you're holy and that you're sovereign, that you're perfect, that you make no mistakes. When we talk about sex and we talk about sexual identity, we talk about the things that we need to know and understand as a people, help us to remember that you came into a world very, you came into our world, this world, a world that was fallen, a world that was filled with lies, a world that was filled with people who did not know you and behaved in accordance with their beliefs and the, their reality. And yet you came as one who gives hope. You came to seek and to save the lost. You came to give life, to give abundant life. You came to reconcile all people to yourself. And this gospel, there's none beneath or none beyond the reach of the grace of God. And I pray, Father, that you'll remind us of the need, not just so that we'll experience outrage, not just so that we'll get emotionally engaged, even though we ought to be angry. We ought to be angry and sin not. There, there are many times when it's appropriate to express outrage. But help us to know the right way and the right place and the right way. And let this be motivate, motivational for us to be aware, to be engaged for the good of our community, but ultimately for the glory of God as we speak truth in the gospel into the lives of people. We love you and we trust you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.